Well, good morning. So good to see each and every one of you. Take your Bibles and turn them to Nehemiah chapter number nine. I appreciate um, immensely Brother Jeremy laying out the order of worship for us this morning. So I'm going to preach for three hours, and then you all are going to worship for three hours, and then confess sin in the three hours, and we'll see what goes from there. Nope? Okay, moving on. When you hear the word revival, what comes to mind? So I don't know what your heritage is in all of the room because we're an eclectic bunch. We're a motley crew of followers of Jesus in the room. I see uh, quite a few here this morning from different backgrounds. I have some images of revivals, maybe you do since we're here in the south, of tent meetings. Well, in the south you, didn't, you don't do the hard T. It's tent meetings, right? And camp meetings and sawdust on the floor. And I don't know how in the old days the Church of God camp meetings would get the Hammond B3 in the sawdust and the the Leslie not get messed up. Only four of us know what that is. But I don't know how they did that. And uh, they'd bring an upright, one of the uh, uprights or a console, and and do camp meeting and tent meeting that way. And it was revival. You'd see a sign, revival out. Um, And and people would, there'd be a choir that would sing. Maybe that's the image that comes to your mind for revival. Now, as we spend more time to, with each other, as I get the privilege and honor to serve as your pastor, Darren said I only had to go one year longer than him, so 30. I've got to make that 30. Okay, so as we spend time together, more and more of my backstory will come out. I'm not trying to conceal it anyway. It just doesn't fit everything. But when I was a young teenager, I was a part of an explorer's program where we did ride-alongs with EMS. Yeah. So uh, by the time I was 15 and a half years old, I had done real life actual CPR on folks three times. I will not tell you the survival rate. Um, I don't want to be morbid. I learned something about statistics though, Dr. Hall, because on Rescue 911, the TV show that was online, like on TV, everybody came back to life. That's not really the way that works, and statistically speaking. But that's an interesting thing. So you say revival or revive someone to an EMT, their mind goes somewhere differently. You say to someone in the medical profession, they go somewhere differently. From an ammonia inhalant to revive somebody who's disoriented, lethargic to CPR. Uh, And then you say it in the church world and it conjures up different meanings. Well, I think sometimes we mistake revival. We think we need revival when some folks actually need regeneration. They need to be transformed by the power of God. They've not actually been saved and radically changed. They've done church well, but they need to be made new by the power of God. And then revival for those of us in uh, Christ who have become a bit lethargic and maybe are uh, comfortable with our sleep and slumber and rest. We need to wake up, oh, you that are sleeping in Zion, and get about our Father's business. Nehemiah, and we're going to do a spoiler alert here in just a moment, but I want us to live in the tension of chapters 8 and 9 when we get there. Nehemiah gives us an incredible, um, not formula, but template, if you will. there's There's some key elements here that I think show up if you're going to experience revival personally or corporately as a church body. 
Think about where we are in the the passage. So in chapters 1 through 6, let's do a quick summary overview of the book of Nehemiah. In chapters 1 through 6, they've rebuilt the wall. And then we turn a corner in chapters 7 through 12. In chapter 7, I found this summary helpful. Uh, Chapter 7, they're reviewing the returnees. They're seeing who's coming back into Jerusalem, the names of those families. Chapter 8, they're reviewing the Torah. They're they're resurrecting the the Bible reading. That's what we did last week, rebuilding on God's Word. In Nehemiah 9, there's repentance, there's praise for God's mercy, there's confession of sin. In chapter 10, uh, 9 and 10 go together, actually 8, 9 and 10 go together. And, And in chapter 10, there's this covenant that they articulate, that they renew. Spoiler alert, they're going to break it later. But again, we're going to try to live in that moment while we're there and, and, and take what we can from it. In chapter 11, they begin repopulating Jerusalem. In chapter 12, the wall is dedicated. And in chapter 13, they break the covenant that they just did. It's like, you just did this, parents. Really? Like, we can, anybody can relate? Wait, we just went through this. We don't jump off the top step. We can break things, and not just the steps, but your face, right? Don't, please don't jump. I was uh, at a hotel just over the weekend, and this dad was um, getting, he was checking out uh, at the little cafe that's in the hotel lobby, and he was getting uh, coffee and, and a pastry of some kind, and his kids were in another section, and they were literally, the, the buffet seats were springing. I know that because you could see their little heads popping up and then they would run to the next one. They, like all of them, they tested all the seats. They all passed the test. And, and his three kids were out there and I said, man, your kids are, are awesome. I said that to him because everybody else in the room was looking at him like, like that. So I thought, I'll be the difference guy. I said, your kids are awesome. He said, yeah, all kinds of awesome. <laughs> Everywhere I go, I hear them. I smell them. They're all kinds of awesome, he said, as they were jumping. And then by that time, they had gotten quiet, and he went, hold on a minute. (laughs) Starts looking for it, right? And and so he had just told them, please don't jump on the things, right? And it wasn't seconds, and they didn't jump on those things. They found another springy seat to jump on. And technically, they weren't jumping on those seats. They're jumping on these seats. And Israel does this time and time again. God says, don't do that. Well, we're not going to do that, but we will do this thing because you didn't expressly say. And then there are times where God says, don't intermarry with pagans. And they're like, okay, but the wedding's Saturday. So, like, we've already ordered the flowers. I don't know what to do, right? We find ourselves identifying, if we're honest, we can probably identify with Israel more than we care to admit. Chapter 9 we, we get into this chapter, and it's the payoff for the weeping that started in chapter 8. Do you remember? Right before the festival of booths started, they read God's word, and the people were weeping, and then the leaders say, whoa, 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 we've got to do the festival of booths now, um, and then we'll have time for confession and repentance later, and that's where we are. The festival of booths continues to the 22nd day of the seventh month, then there's this other ceremony they do, and so now we come to the 24th day of this month. I think what I was trying to say earlier is better said this way. I think we see a model of confession that could lead to revival. If you you wanted like a a summary of what we're about to see in chapter 9. It's a model of confession that could lead to revival. If you want to stop pretending in your spiritual life and get real, 
or, or be authentic, all the little words we're supposed to use now as, as, as those key words. But if you really want to walk with Jesus, I think you'll find some help in Nehemiah 9. I want you to notice in the first section here, here's your first header. You could just write the word repentance or you could write their humble approach. However you want to write the note, I gave you a couple options there. You could write all three words if you want to. And if you have a highlighter or a, a pen that you're comfortable marking in your Bible with, even if you didn't bring a Bible and you'd just like to do that, grab a pew Bible and, and mark in that one if you want to. There's some key words here that if you're doing Bible study at home, it's good to look at the key words and to see what words really shine in a text. Not based on how they make you feel, but based on their placement in the text, the tone, the repetition. It's just what do you see when you read Nehemiah chapter 9? Well, here's what we see. Let's look at verse 1 together. Now, in the 24th month, we see these people of Israel are assembled together. They're assembled with fasting. They have on sackcloth and they have earth on their heads. Watch these folks that tell you they want you to be part of a biblical church. You better ask them exactly what they mean. Do I need to show up with sackcloth on and put dirt in my hair? I don't know. It might be some new TikTok challenge. I'm not sure. But that's not what we're doing today. They assembled. It's pretty incredible. Nehemiah didn't tell them to assemble in verse 1. Ezra didn't call them to do this as the priest. The normal order of festivities didn't necessitate this, but this was a people who were broken because they had been confronted with God's word and they wanted to approach God in the most humble way they knew how. All pretense was gone. All the masquerades were gone. They knew their hearts and minds were soiled and unclean. And this is the way it was represented culturally in that time. Cloth that bothered your skin. It was the absence of comfort. Sackcloth. Well, the closest thing we have would be um, unprocessed burlap. So if you put on old school, a potato sack, right, and, and put that on as a dress, just imagine, dudes, as, as britches. I'll say britches for dudes and a dress for ladies. Just imagine, your first step, you'd be like, oh, oh, th- nope, nope. You've got to have some baby powder or something to necessitate that, right, mitigate that itch. Well, that's what they did. They did that to scratch and to bother their skin, to bother them and trigger that they were bothered about their sin. Verse 2, they separated themselves and they confessed their sins. They weren't messing around. They got away from everything normal and they got down to business and it wasn't business as usual. This was a time of personal ownership of their sin. They recognized, they confessed, and they repented of their sinful rebellious hearts. This is what confession and repentance looks like. The year was 1992. The educational bureaucracy in Texas had reviewed and approved a set of history textbooks for the public school system. A group of parents who actually looked at what the school system was giving their kids to read. Imagine that. Controversial today. But they actually got the books and they discovered 231 errors. I can't help but think that Bethany Lachelle was probably on that team at the time. Anyway, 231 errors. The textbook reported Napoleon actually won the war at Waterloo. Uh, President Truman dropped a bomb on Korea. Uh, And General Douglas MacArthur, instead of Senator Joe McCarthy, had led the anti-communist campaign in the 50s. So it's just a couple of them. 
So they called the school board and the bureaucracy account for the errors. The school board launched their own investigation, and the parents went back and looked again. All total, they found 5,200 substantial mistakes in the textbooks. How did the publishers react to this mess? A spokesperson stood. An adult person actually said the words I'm about to tell you. Ready for this? Well, except for the errors, these were the finest textbooks we've ever produced. What? That's not a confession. That's not repentance. But that's what you and I do with our sins sometimes, isn't it? Well, I mean, except for this one thing, I'm, I'm, I've got it. I'm doing pretty good. That's not what confession looks like. That's not what repenting looks like. The, beaver, the believer who wants a true revival throws away the list of favorite excuses. Listen to me. Confession replaces excuses. Confession replaces excuses. Tap your neighbor and say, when he says it three times, we probably should write it down. Confession replaces excuses. When's the last time you got alone with God and confessed? There's so much here. In verse 3, they get the book of the law out. They read it again. And as a result of reading the law for a quarter of the day, they take three more hours after that and confess their sin and worship the Lord their God. Recognize their need for God's word. It's come up again and again and again. Listen, if you want to say, you know what? I'm not really about the Bible. I'm just about Jesus. You can't be about Jesus and not be about the Bible. I, I don't really get into all that doctrine stuff. I just want to worship. You don't know how to worship if you don't have the Bible. You, you've got to get in the book so the book can get in to you. It comes to life as the Holy Spirit brings to life the text they get into God's word again and again and again, and we see their response, confession and worship, confession and worship. Grace Covenant Church, dear brother or sister, dear guest this morning, what is your response to God's word? Whoo, thank God that's over, let's get out of here, or is it confession and worship? It's a right response, Old Testament and new. You see it in verse four, they cry with a loud voice, to the Lord their God, their worship was expressive, it was reverent, it was demonstrative, and it was appropriate worship. That's exactly what they do. They come to the Lord humbly and approached Him, and, and now after these three hours of, of Scripture and three hours of confession and worship, they're going to transition into this incredible account of God's faithfulness through generations. In fact, the message could have had a lot of titles. And in fact, Israel's not even the main character in Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah's not, Ezra's not, Jehovah God is. Let, let me show you what I mean. They're going to remember God's goodness and God's greatness from Nehemiah verse 9, verses 6 through 30. Nehemiah is going to highlight the goodness and greatness of Jehovah God with key moments from creation, Abraham, Exodus, the wilderness, the conquest, the judges, the prophets, and their exile God's justice and mercy. I'm going to read through a lot of this for us, and it's going to preach for itself. 
Why would you read a lot of scripture? Well, because when you read scripture according to God's word, people confess and worship. Let's give it a shot, shall we? Um, Another reason I'm going to read this account for you, because you just have to know this. Um, As a student of God's word, what we're about to read, this passage, one writer notes, is the fullest summary of the storyline of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. This is biblical theology from the Old Testament at its finest. The command in verse 5 said they stood up, they blessed the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then they transition in verse 6. If you're going to take notes, I'm going to give you some some little words to put out by the verses if you want to. By verse 6, I would write creation. Look at the verse. You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. What are they doing? They're saying, you are God, all by yourself. You created all things. Then they move to the covenant, that's what I'd write beside verses 7 and 8, the covenant with Abraham. You're the Lord, the God who chose Abram from and brought him out of Ur, out of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made with him the covenant to give him offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So you're not only the creator. But as we look in God's word, we see that he is the promise keeper. These items are arranged theologically. It's incredible how the Levites have presented this to the people. It moves from Abram's righteousness by faith to the covenant God made with him and then to the conclusion that God is the one that's faithful. Then they move to Exodus. Nehemiah 9, verses 9 through 15. Exodus in the wilderness. He sees the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, performing signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. There's a key little text to underline in your Bibles in the end of verse 10, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. He goes on in verse 12 to talk about how they, uh, verse 11, how he divided the Red Sea and made dry ground. How he led them in verse 12 with a pillar of cloud and a fire in the night. Verse 13, coming down to Mount Sinai and giving the rules and the true laws and the good statutes and commandments. Verse 14, and you made known to them the holy Sabbath and command them these commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Look at this good God giving all of these good things to this people that he's describing as his people. Wow, what's the response going to be? I mean, the people have everything they need. They've been delivered by the hand of God. Their enemies have been destroyed. And you're like, this is going to be awesome. You're going to see revival. They're going to get a tent, put sawdust down, get the Hammond organ out, the piano, and they're going to shout for days. And we look at verse 16, and it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Well, surely he's missing, like he skipped over a bunch. Nuh-uh. Do you remember the account from Exodus? Like Moses just 
the meter barely expires as he stepped away from them. He's up on the mountain getting the law from God. And they're like, well, I guess Moses is dead. Let's do what we've all, anybody got, let's make a gold calf. This is what delivered us out of there. Like you're going, what, what is going on with these people? They stiffened their neck. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed, but they stiffened their neck, there it is again, and appointed a leader to return to their slavery. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them even when they'd made for themselves a golden calf. This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Yikes! That's our response to this holy God that delivers us out of Egypt. Israel says, you know what? Let's repay God. Let's thank God. Let's build a, a golden image and, and just ignore everything he said. You know, in that imagery of stiffening their neck, the, if you go back to some of the play in the original language, it's actually the language used for cows and, and what they would do. The language depicts Israel acting like an unwilling cow that won't go. You've seen this. We think mules are stubborn. Cows are bigger. Try to move an unwilling cow. Their necks get like stone and they're like, mm-mm. And you're like, <laughs> I mean, that's me trying to open a banana. Let's be honest, all right? But let's, you know, they just try to pull and yank and get this thing moving and their necks are stiff. Here's the little lesson from their hidden lesson. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, we might become like what we worship. We keep creating these false gods and these images and these idols as a culture and you're watching culture turn into the very thing that they are worshiping. Psalm 115 verse 8, there it is, we'll become like the false gods that we make and worship. How do we respond when God's so good to us? With praise and thanksgiving? With confession and worship? Or do we like... Thanks, God, I got it from here. Careful. How did God respond to their sin? Well, just remember, he said he was ready to forgive. He was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. In verses 19 through 21, look at what he says. With your great mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. He still led them by day and by night. Verse 20, he still gave their good, his good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold food from their mouth and water for them to drink. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Wow. So let's summarize where we've been. We, we started with creation. We've moved through the covenant, through Exodus. Now I'm going to paraphrase a little more of these verses for time's sake, but I want you to go and read this whole chapter. It's one of the greatest theological summaries of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. In verses 22 through 25, the, the conquest happens. He gives them kingdoms and, and peoples and all of the things that they are setting out to conquer. He allows them to conquer, to possess the land and to fortify cities. He gives them good things. They eat and are filled and they become fat. That's not a proof text, by the way, for us today. But anyway, they became fat on the goodness of the Lord. So how did they respond to that? You know what the next bulletin is? No shock here, but it's rebellion. Look at verse 26. Let's do read that verse. They were disobedient. 
They rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn their back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Well, that wraps up that section and then we move to where God gives them judges in verses 27 through 28. They experience a little bit of peace in the land while the judges are ruling faithfully and then how do they respond? They, they start doing what's right in their own eyes. The judges bring some peace. Then they rebel again. God sends them prophets in verses 29 through 30. He, he bears with them by these prophets, sends warning uh, with them to, by his spirit. Yet they would not give ear, so he gave them in the hand of the people of the land. So let's take a breath. That's a lot of history. I didn't bring you here for a history lesson. This is not a history lesson. These are people praying and talking to God. Do you see how much the Bible can shape our prayer life if we know the Bible? You see, if we don't know the Bible, we're tempted to pray like this. And we all kind of learn to pray, right? Bow your heads. Maybe you didn't. But when I was little, even before I was a Christian, my grandmother was the only Christian in our family on both sides. And, you know, it was bow your head, close your eyes, clasp your hands, right? I never found that. It's probably between Revelation and Maps somewhere, but I didn't. I never found it in my Bible, but, it, but that's how you did it, right? Because that picture of the old man with the piece of bread, she had that up in her kitchen, and that's how he, he was like this. So that was, I think that was Paul. I don't know who took the photo, but anyway, I make a bad joke anyway. So we would do like this, and, and I'm afraid if we're not careful, this is exactly how we posture our view when we pray. It's just us, our world, what comes through our hands, and so we like, God, you know, I've really been struggling. I've been struggling the last 10 years. I've been struggling all my life. And we start this narrative. It's not really true. Maybe you have been struggling all your life, but God hasn't struggled. Like, come up for air. Get the big picture. You need to get in God's word. Let it inform your prayer life. And you know what you'll find? He's faithful and you're not. He's holy. <laughs> and, and you're not. We've been made the righteousness of God because of who Christ is is and if we're in Christ we have forgiveness for our sin we are drinking from a well drawn from Emmanuel's veins what a blessing that is but but our only hope is that we are in Christ and so our life is promised tribulation I've, I've said this too many times but if you're new this morning I'll give you a life verse Jesus said in this world you shall have tribulation be of good cheer. And then he cued Mandisa and she started singing, You're an overcomer. Nope. That's not how it played. That is not how that played out. You know what he did? He said, Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Our whole lives and focus isn't this, it's fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the suffering, despising the shame, paid the price for our redemption. We're a part of the story because God grafted us in. What a God. This stuff matters. Nehemiah 9 matters in 2022 in your prayer life. If for nothing else to remind you that God is bigger than your problem today and he's faithful what a great biblical summary this is. It's one of the best with biblical theological tomes. Now, I know the specifics are different, and you and I didn't go through everything they went through, but I'll bet, I'll just bet if we were honest, 
If it was open mic at Grace Covenant, no, we're not planning that, but if it were, and Dr. Hall was on this side walking through and saying, tell us what a rotten sinner you are. And we pass the mic around. All of us have a story of unfaithfulness in our own lives and walks to tell. As much as we'd like for our spiritual journey to be, wait, if I'm doing this backwards mirrored, so it would be this way, right? On a chart. Yeah, if you're looking at a chart, as much as we'd like for our chart to go like this. Here's where I was saved and then boom, my spiritual maturity. And I'm just keep selling up one day. I'm just going to go up. Right? It goes like this. More like, it's more like. Good day when I had to do the scripture reading and, right? Or is that just me? Our sanctifications look differently. But here's what God's word shows us. Here's what this passage shows us. And here's what God's word shows us. It shows us the majesty of God and the depravity of humanity. The goodness of God and our need for him to ever do anything good in and through our own lives which takes us right to our final point for the sermon this morning. We need to receive God's grace and God's mercy. The the reality is if you approach God with humility, you're gonna come to him recognizing he's the creator, he's the ruler, and you are gonna come. Not looking at your life, it's like, oh, God never does anything for me, but looking at your life honestly and saying, oh, I'm wretched, I'm in need. Of everything that you are, I'm not. And I need you today. Uh, For my brother and sister in Christ, it's good to confront ourselves with the gospel every day and remind ourselves we need Jesus when we wake up in the morning till I lay my head to rest. And so we, we, we humbly, repentantly submit ourselves to God. We say, search me, O Lord. Try me. See if there's any wicked thing in me. Most of us don't have to get that far. We say, hey, God, I've been up 10 minutes. You got a minute? Because I got some repenting to do. Or, or again, is that just me? This is cathartic for me this morning, y'all. I don't know about y'all. That's good. Romans 9, 31 through 37. Every time God did something amazing for his people, they seemed to respond with sin badly. Imagine with me for just a moment if all of your friends, all of them, even your bestie, that would never, never do what I'm about to say. Like, you can't even go there. I need you to pretend for just a minute. Imagine if all of your friends, all of your family, and everyone in this church sinned against you regularly, badly, and all at the same time piled it on. How would you feel? You'd be heartbroken. And I'm just betting you'd be angry. Yeah? What in the world? Those people, they don't even know. And I'm gonna, and I'll tell you right now. Right, you start to come out. You're ready to like, I'll I'll take every one of them on. Tell me I'm not angry. Sin provokes the wrath of God. God has chosen in his kindness to be slow to anger. Look around the room. You say, I don't believe that. Look around the room. We're all alive. There's proof. Because the first time we sin, we deserved the full throttle of God's wrath. 
The first lie you told, you deserved all that hell has to offer. That's popular preaching on a Sunday morning in 2022, isn't it? I'm not here to score popularity points. I'm here to watch out for your souls. God's wrath is provoked by sin. But fortunately, God is slow to anger. All of His people sin against Him regularly, directly as acts of open rebellion. And yet, He responds, how? With grace and with mercy. In verse 31, the Bible says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. Translation, you ready? He didn't end them. You want to know what it means in Greek? He didn't end them. Hebrew, he didn't end them. All the translation, the Spanish Bible says he didn't end them. He didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 17, we go back to that. It says he's ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That's the summary of those final verses. God did this ultimately for all of humanity, not just Israel, when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, virgin born, lived a sinless, spotless, perfect life was crucified on a criminal's cross. God had to satisfy His own wrath against sin if He was going to be slow to anger and quick to forgive. The crucifixion of our precious Lord Jesus Christ fully satisfied all of the righteous demands of God against the sinner for those who would believe. That means that we can confess our sins knowing that they've been fully paid for. If we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, God put all of our sin on Him. When God crushed Jesus, He crushed our sin. But even though it's paid for, He still invites, even commands us to come before Him and acknowledge our sin to confess our sin. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, but if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word isn't in us. This whole thing about excuses versus confession, well, I'm not as bad and it's not really, it was the best textbook we ever produced except for all the mistakes. That's not confession. It's God, I sinned. I don't want to do that. I'm your child. I, I, want to be, I want to walk in your forgiveness. I want to walk in the newness of life, God. My grandmother taught me this a long time ago. Jesus, help me to be sensitive to sin and sensitive to your spirit. It would be delusional for us to say we don't have any sin, to pretend that everything's all right and demand the blessing of God without the confession that He commands. Anyone in tune with God is often overwhelmed by his own guilt and by God's amazing grace. I don't want to embarrass a brother in here this morning, but I was with a brother in a, what could have been a very low moment of his life. And, and publicly and before the law, he had been exonerated and, and off the hook, so to speak. And as we stepped away, I just noticed something in his disposition as he dropped his head and said, you know, I, 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 I didn't do that, but I, I should have, man, I could have. That was carnal of me to, 
I mean, everybody, all of his friends, everybody saying, you're off the hook. But here's a man that's so in tune with God, he knew it was false to pretend that he was sinless. He was saying, search me, Lord, try me. If there's anything wicked there, I want to repent of it. As they cry out for mercy and grace, they address God with humility. Verse 32, they call him the great, mighty, awesome God who keeps covenant, who loves with an everlasting love. In verse 33, they say, you've been righteous, you've dealt with us faithfully. In verse 36, you've set us up to be fruitful, you gave us good gifts. Church of the living God in 2022, when we're hearing this preached text from Nehemiah chapter number 9, the God that you and I pray to is the great mighty, awesome God. He keeps his promises. He loves with an everlasting love. He has been righteous. He is righteous. He is righteousness defined. He has always been faithful. He is faithful now whether you feel him or not, and he will always be faithful. He has set us up to be fruitful, and he has given us all of the good gifts that we need to satisfy his will for our lives. Let the church say amen. That's who you're praying to. You approach him with humility. You approach him knowing God's word so you can pray in an informed way about to the person that you are addressing. This is not the man upstairs. You're not lobbing one up to hope one gets through. This is communing with the creator and the ruler of the universe. I hope your prayer life never recovers from Nehemiah chapter number 9. Interlaced in all those wonderful attributes of God, they were honest about who they were, a rebellious people in need of all he was, trying to remember all he's already done. As Julia comes to the piano this morning and the worship team makes their way to the stage in a few moments, I want to ask you a question. Do you need revival? Do you need renewal? Do you need regeneration? The model in Nehemiah 9, I think, works for both groups. Here's a pathway to revival. Seeing God as who he truly is. And by the way, you won't see him as he truly is unless you get in the word. <laughs> That's where you discover who he is. This is how he chose to reveal himself to humanity. Praise God. Becoming aware of your own sinfulness. And as you become aware of God's willingness to save and forgive, you recognize that He's the only one that can. The Holy Spirit will use God's precious Word to show you His majesty and holiness. That will expose your true need and point you to the one who is all sufficient to meet that true need. The Lord Jesus Christ. And grace comes. And mercy comes and floods your life, and you become this resource, this ambassador of joy and hope in spite of the world around you. You are shining like a light in a dark place. I've read that somewhere before. You are seasoning the culture around you like salt in a tasteless world. I've read that somewhere before. Regeneration and revival both commence with God's word. They continue as we become a people who regularly confess. And they are confirmed 
by the transformed life of committing to walk with God. Let's pray. Father, even though we've read of Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites, and Israel's incredibly epic history this morning, Lord, you are the main attraction of this chapter. It's because of who you are and what you do for your people. Lord, we marvel at what your people must do for you. Help us to be a people that repents. Help us to be a people that remembers and a people who have and continue to receive your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen.